Parshas told us. Parshas told us. It's interesting. I, I, I always think of Parshas told us as a little bit of this transition moment in the Torah, a little bit. And um, I'm going to say something that sounds slightly disrespectful and heretical, and, and I don't mean for it to. I mean, obviously, I don't mean for it to, but but I, I don't I don't I don't mean it in that way. And then I feel like in Toldos, in a way, we transition from maybe the children Bible stories to um, a little bit more of like an adult fair. And and what I mean to say is is that you know, there's obviously there's like a lot of uh, complexity in Bereshis, which is just hard to understand at all, and Noah, and Lech Lecha, Vayera, Chayesara, right? And in, in all of those, it, it really, but, you know, if when you're reading it as a child, or when you're telling it over to children, it's easy to, to abstract away some of the complexity. Abraham, he's a good guy, he hides Sarah in the box, all these stories, you can say them to children, and while as adults we we see them as much more complicated and much more deep and we have to really you know investigate them but for children you could abstract away i think a lot of the complexity and and there's a story with avram and sarah and you know the 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 heroes are heroes the villains are villains and everything is very easy and simple i think if you if you if you if you don't look uh too deep once you get to Toldos and you begin the story of Esav and Yaakov and Yitzchak and Rivka, it, it, it becomes much harder to. And there's this Esav, he's a bad guy from birth. Uh, Yitzchak doesn't understand this. Yaakov steals the blessings. He steals them. He runs away. Then we go to Lavan and Leah tricks Yaakov and Rachel and the fighting and all this, and then the, then you get to the, you know, the big, you know, the big elephant in the room and the brothers sell Yosef, Yaakov likes Yosef too much, and then the brothers are jealous. So first they want to kill him, but then they're humanitarians and they throw him into a pit in the middle of a desert, right, to let him starve to death or whatever. And then they say, no, we're going to even be even nicer. And they sell him off into slavery for a couple of, you know, for money to buy a couple of pairs of shoes. And then he goes to, to Egypt. And there's this, and this story, it gets much more complicated and much more difficult to abstract away that complexity, even from the basic telling of the story. And why does this make a difference to me, anyways? And what, what it makes a difference to me is, is that I feel like many of us, when we, especially when we learn Chumash Bracious, are very often stuck in one of two modes. We're either stuck in Sunday school mode where we approach all the stories, we approach everything with that perspective. And then since it clashes with our adult developed ideas or values, we just either say that they're fictional or we discard them or we just say, oh, whatever, and we, and we, and we leave them. The other approach is, is that we go and we don't bother really trying to understand what's going on. But we just say, well, really what's happening is, is that it's all very understandable. They're, they were simple people like we are. And, you know, Avram had these feelings and Sarah had these feelings. And, and everyone is all very basic. And the brothers, they were jealous of Yosef and they you know, chucked him into a pit. 
to kill him and this is what I would do to my brother. Well, maybe not me to my brother. I happen to have a good relationship, but I... The, 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 well, How is your brother? My brother Barksdale is doing well, thank God. Thank God. So, you know, you know and, like, and, like, and like we try to bring them down to our level and um, uh, kind of project onto them our own vices and our own failings and say, what's the big deal? If I could be tempted by X, Y, Z, why shouldn't Avram been tempted by this? So there are, these are both difficult, they're both kind of, I think, wrong approaches because the purpose of Chumash Beratius and the purpose of all these stories is not to A, be story time for kids or to be a book of myths that talks about the heroes of old and the Greek tragedies. And if you notice that they're written very differently because most of our ancestors don't do super mythological, amazing things. And all the heroics that they do tends to be abstracted away into Midrash, right? And if you look at the actual text of the Chumash that's given to Moshe, they're mostly suffering or doing morally difficult things or undergoing, you know, difficult trials. They're not living the, the, this kind of epic life and having epic stories or epic events that you see in most other kind of ancient stories and myths. It's very Jewish. It's just one long suffering after the other. The, the, so, you know, what was it given to us for? And the reason why it was given for us is to teach us something very uh, profound about who we are. And there's this kind of ethos that goes through the entire Chumash Bratius of Misa Ovis Simulabanim. The actions of our forefathers and foremothers of our, of our uh, forebears is meant to be a simon for the children. And a simon for the children means that it's meant to be an a, uh, indicator for the children. Meaning we're supposed to study these stories and really understand them and look at their successes and their failings. That the Torah is being very blatant about and to be able to use them as a guide to life. We cannot sufficiently understand the story if we don't develop an appreciation for who they are. If we think that Avram can do certain things because we're tempted the same way, then we, don't, we can't possibly get to the depth and the complexity of what really was going on because we just have the entire perception of that uh, reality wrong. And therefore, if you're going to be approaching the Torah to study it in this way, that you're really trying to learn what the messages are, right, at least from the context of Jewish uh, tradition. So it requires a certain a priori um, awareness that we're talking about very, very righteous and holy people, and that righteous and holy people could sin, and they can struggle, and they can do right or wrong things, but in their struggles, there is a deep complexity that we have to analyze, pick through, and learn from. And therefore, it's something which is fundamental, I think. In order for us to be able to get something out of Chumash Bracious and for it to have value, is for us to properly uh, contextualize who and what we're talking about. And therefore, all of a sudden, their failings become educational. It's not educational for me to know that there exist people who sleep around. That's not educational. I know this. I live in 2020, right? What's educational is, oh, if King David could have done something like this with Bathsheba, and King David was the same person who wrote to Hillam and was this incredibly righteous person, what happened there? 
where did King David sin? What was the nature of that, of that error? And how could I learn from it? I remember I had a Rebbe. So there, there's, a, there's this uh, a famous, uh, you can ask Micha about it. There's this famous uh, line or whatever they say in yeshiva. It's called a musarvart. So a musarvart means that, you know, the Bali Musar, the people who teach about ethics and behavior, they interpret certain things. They have, they have certain ways of looking at Chumash or Devar Torah or whatever. So there, there's an old joke to make fun of these, of these, of these, uh, uh, I shouldn't say make fun, to poke some fun at some of these Musarvarts is that they'll say, here's this incredibly righteous person, tremendous sadik, incredible person, incredible, incredible person. Here's an act which he did, terrible sin, despicable sin, dirty sin, horrific sin, animalistic sin. How does such a person do such a sin? The answer is yeah. That's what the sin's very powerful. People want people want to sin. You got nothing from it. You got nothing from it because it's actually a real question, right? How does such a person who's so righteous do such a sin? Okay, so you know, is the Torah just describing it in a certain way to you know, even though it was much more subtle to make it sound how bad it was on their level, all sorts of ideas. But it's important for us to try to go a little bit deeper in order for us to be able to actually get anything of value from it. And I think the first place to start from really is at the birth of, of Esav and Yaakov. And the birth of Esav and Yaakov, in my opinion, shatters a certain illusion that people have about righteousness. And the illusion that people have about righteousness is that we think that we are able to describe the righteous person. And the righteous person in our minds, the holy righteous person, fits a certain description that we have in our minds. And this is something which is very simple. The righteous person studies Torah, is very refined, is kind, speaks nicely, is, you know, we have this whole image in our mind of, of the, the righteous person, the holy person. You know, they, they're, they're very kind of, they're very non-earthy. They're all, that's the holy person in our minds, right? The, uh, I'm going to mess up how the, 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 the pronunciation. Not the ascetic, the, the ascetic. The ascetic, right? Is this, and Esau is not that person. Esau is born evil. He, according to the Midrash, as we're going to see, wants to go to a, to, a, to a temple of idol worship, even in the womb. He's born covered in hair and earthy and animalistic and passionate. And he, you know, is somebody who is very attached to the earth and to the field. And Esau is this character who is this crude, animalistic, born evil type guy in our minds to some extent. And as we're going to see it, that's a tremendous misconception of who Esau was. And if we stick with that, then we completely miss the boat in Yitzchak as well. Because Yitzchak may have been blind, but he wasn't stupid. And Yitzchak knew who his son was. And he knew what he was born like. And therefore, it's an, it's an understanding Esau that we really, I think, have the first step to looking at a little bit of the complexity of what's really going on over here, I think. So Herman, if you don't mind starting for us from the beginning of Parshas Toldos. Okay. All right. These are the chronicles of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham was Isaac's father 
When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, daughter of Betuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, and sister of Levan, the Aramean. His wife was sterile, and Isaac pleaded with God for her sake. God granted his plea, and Rebekah became pregnant. But the children clashed inside her, and when this occurred, she asked, why is this happening to me? She went to seek a message from God. God's word to her was, two nations are in your womb. Two governments will separate from inside you. The upper hand will go from one government to the other. The greater one shall serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, <clears throat> there were twins in her womb. The first one came out reddish, as hairy as a fur coat. They named him Aesop. His brother then emerged, and his hand was grasping Aesop's heel. Isaac named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Okay, so let's pause for a second. What happens over here? Right? So first, the Pasuk, you know, so the very beginning is, the Pasuk says that, you know, that Yitzchak was Abram's son, and the commentaries question the uh, redundancy. Why does it say Avram Olud as Yitzchak? So the commentaries explain that it's coming to point out that Yitzchak looked exactly like Avram. The reason why this was important was because there were people in the, in the generation who said that uh, Avraham was not Yitzchak's father. Because, right, Sarah lives with Avram for many, many years. They don't have any children. And then she has this episode with Avimelech. So it must have been Avimelech who got her pregnant. And therefore, they were, they were trying to cast aspersions onto Yitzchak being uh, Avram's son. So Hashem made it, or, or the, the Torah testifies that, that Yitzchak looked exactly like Avram, and that uh, dispelled that rumor. Which is fascinating, because you realize Avram had Yishmael already. And in fact, what's fascinating is that the commentaries explain when it says earlier, uh, uh, or, or sorry, or yeah, earlier that uh, Sarah saw uh, Yishmael Mitzachik, him playing, is that he was teasing Yitzchak, that he's indeed Avimelech's son and not Avram. So that, that's what the Medrash writes. So what's interesting is that, is that, you know, his own, you know, he knew his father was capable of having children, but still, you know, he, he played along with this rumor. And this is really the nature of mockery or scorn, right? Is that rumors could be started on the far reaches of the internet and still have tremendous impact. And, you know, there's, you know, and the reality is that even if you looked like him, people can still say all sorts of things. Okay, but so that so so that's the first verse. So then uh, it says that uh, Rivka again. It's, it seems a little bit redundant. She comes from Padan Aram. She's the daughter of Besuel. She's the sister of Lavan, right? Why does it have to give us the entire you know um, uh, genealogy of of uh, Rivka? So the commentaries explain the reason is is because it wants to point out how praiseworthy she is. Is that here is this uh, woman who grows up in terrible company. And yet, uh, she comes out righteous. There's another point here, which I think is important, is that the reason why Rivka, as we're going to see later, is able to understand and appreciate the complexity of Asaph and understand what needs to be done is because she's Lavan's sister. And the shrewdness that's exhibited by, by Rivka doesn't come from nowhere. 
And there's an important, and we're going to see, we'll talk about this later, how Yaakov develops a very similar skill set, is that the, the uh, wholesome, simple Tamim Jew is not always the right person for the job. There also sometimes needs to be the wheeler-dealer understands what to do, the shrewd Jew. There's a very fascinating Gemara. That the Gemara says that the rabbis have to be extremely well-versed in all forms of trickery. Because if they're not, then the uh, Ramayim, the crooks and the hoodlums, are not going to respect them. And they're not going to be able to deal properly with them. And therefore, it's important that rabbis also know how to wheel, deal, manipulate. I don't have those skills, but at least, I, at least I'm not going to uh, confess to them. You don't have but, lock, lock. You don't have lock picking skills for sure. I don't have lock picking, as we as we as, as we well know, <laughs> <laughs> as we tragically know. But uh, maybe that should be my my next hobby, um, and I'll get caught breaking into a safe somewhere. There, the but 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 so it's important to know that Rivka, especially as we as we start the story, to know that where Rivka is coming from. That Yitzhak is this wholesome tzaddik, and he's not really prepared for an ace of like character. While Rivka is super prepared, and there's a there's a very famous story. It's it's a I, depends who you ask if it was said in a snarky way or is said in a true way, if the Rizal was making fun of the Al or not. But there was a there was so so in Svat during the days of the Arizal, there also lived a very famous sage whose name was Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Moshe Alshech. His, his shul is still there, the Alshech shul. And he used to, he was a rabbi there and he used to give a sermon. So the Arizal would once in a while, I guess, uh, uh, attend his sermon. And he gave a sermon, I think it was on Netflix parts really, by Yete, and he began to describe all the different tricks that Lavan did. So in the middle of his sermon, the Arizal started smiling every few minutes. So they asked the Arizal afterwards, you know, why, why were you smiling? He said, oh, because when the Alshach started talking, he was so holy that Lavan came down to listen. And for most of the tricks that the Alshach described, you know, the Lavan nodded his head. Every once in a while, Lavan said, hey, I, know, I didn't think of that one. Now, <laughs> I take it as a, a snarky comment, especially if you read the commentary of the Alshach. It's fascinating, very deep, but extremely long. And very well detailed. So it could be that Rizal was 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 making a a, a comment. I, I, I don't know. Some people say no. Really, he was being sincere. Um, but but the point is, is that, is that so, so that's a very important point. Then Rivka gets pregnant, and the babies start fighting inside of her. Rashi and I can bring some Gemara that what happened was when she passed a house of idol worship, Asaph tried to get out. When she passed the house of prayer, Yaakov tried to get out. And when we hear this madras, yes, Yaakov was born holy, he's a tzaddik, and Esav is evil, he's a Russia, right? But that's clearly not what's going on, because there's no Yitzhahara inside a woman's stomach. Yitzhahara, right, it says, Lepesach chatas roves, that sin waits at the door. So the madras, the, 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 the Gemara explains that the evil inclination, the, the base desires, the real evil inclination, enters a person when they're, when they're, when they're born. And before that, they, they, they're, they're sentient, they have a neshama, the neshama can come, you know, they're learning Torah in there, they're holy in there, right? In fact, there's all these different, you know, uh, from the Hasidim have all these different uh, traditions about a woman going into a cemetery or seeing a dog or seeing all the things when she's pregnant because the children are so holy. I mean, the, holy, the, the fetus is holy, it's learning Torah in the womb, there's all these different ideas, right? There's a machlokas, when does the neshama come in from, from conception? 
you know, after 40 days or whatever, but it's definitely, there's no, there's, there's no gates of horror in the, in the womb. So what's Ace of doing trying to go hang out at some base of Odazara, right? I must imagine just trying to teach us with that. I mean, that he was bad from, so then, then the whole story is boring, right? Asav is just a bad guy and Yaakov is just a good guy and nobody accomplished anything interesting. Uh, the other, the other, so then she goes and says, Vatelich Lidros Es Hashem. And Rashi explains that this is referring to, she went to seek counsel at the house of shame, at, at the yeshiva of shame and Aver. Shame was, you know, some people say he was still alive. It's hard to understand. He was been very old. Or at least it was his uh, descendants, his school, um, his, his uh, descendants. And we're going to see that the yeshiva of Shem and Aver, as I mentioned in the past, plays an important role in the development of Yaakov. And she goes there. What's the question is, is that her, grand, her father-in-law is alive, who's a major prophet. All right, Avram is still alive. And her husband is no slouch either. So when I was saying over this, this uh, Dvar Torah to Paral, she said, this is not a question why she didn't bother asking her husband and went to go talk to somebody else, even though her husband is a rabbi. You know, she does it all the time. So, so maybe she said, this, this is not a hard question. But I'm bothered by the question. I think it's a difficult question. Uh, but so the, the, uh, yeah, the, the tension in the Agassiz household. But, the, um, so, but she, she goes and she goes there and, and they tell her, that there's, that there's, this, there's this tension between Asim and Yaakov from birth. And they will separate from the womb. They will each go their own way. And again, she's comforted by this, which is hard to understand. Why would she be comforted by this, right? If we understand it in a very basic way, that they're going to hate each other and one's going to be good and one's going to be evil. I mean, this is a very depressing prophecy for a mother to hear, that her children will not get along, and that one of them will be kind of born evil, right? Devil spawn. This is something which is, which is very hard for any mother. And then it says, "Virav yavoid tsair," right? And 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 this and this idea right, that one will serve the other. It seems very strange. And then the Torah describes the birth of Asaph. Admoni kulika derasayer. He's full of hair. Why is this important for us to know what he looked like? Why is this relevant that he was hairy and he was red and they called him Asaph because of that, right? You know, we would think that our uh, ancestors would have had slightly more um, profound naming conventions than baby comes out full of hair, so they call him hairy. <laughs> it's like, right? It, it seems a little bit, a little bit, you know, uh, uh, banal. They, what they, they didn't have, you know, and the other one is the one who followed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Yaakov is the one holding on to his aka. Like, and okay, so 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 before we we get we move on, I want to just introduce a thesis. This is produced by the Abarbanel and the Sfarn. A lot of commentaries say this in a different way, and 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 this is a central thesis. I've mentioned it a bunch of times before, but I'm still going to repeat it because I think that um, at least I think it, it's it's an important thing to keep in mind. And it kind of illuminates, I think, the rest of Chumash gracious in many ways. And the idea of the thesis is, is that, and we mentioned this when we're talking about Adam and Chava, when we're talking about Hevel and Kayan, and this is really where I think it's most salient. And the idea is, is that the Esav is a righteous person. 
Esav is born holy, he's holy in the womb. Esav is 100% a tzaddik and a holy person. So why does he go for idol worship? What is the temptation of idol worship? What does idol worship really mean? So the Rambam, famous Rambam in, 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 in Yad, Rambam talks about the development of idol worship in, in the world. And where idol worship, as Rambam explains, comes from, it comes from human beings seeking and trying to find divinity in the physical world. It starts by them recognizing everything comes from Hashem, but they want to first give honor to Hashem's servants and Hashem's, you know, uh, the sun, the moon, that all a way of praising God. But ultimately, where idol worship ends up and where the, the, the drive behind it is the desire to, 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 to seek divinity in the material world. And this is something which is extremely important. In Judaism in general, especially in the books of uh, Hasidus, but even much earlier than that, this idea of the divinity existing in the material world is a very, very important concept that it does. Now, the temptation for idol worship and the, the, the drive towards idol worship takes it to an extreme. Instead of looking at what's in the, what's in the material world as simply a manifestation of a kind of manifestation of uh, divinity or something which is tied to something greater, you begin to separate it a little bit from uh, its source and you look at these material things and the material world as being inherently divine. But the drive is the drive for spirituality in the material world. Now, I, I always have this idea, and this could be my, my, uh, my own insanity, but there's this old tradition that if you notice, there's a lot of interesting correlations between Greek philosophy and mysticism. And there, this, this is not like the Rambam, because Rambam was not a mystic. The, but I'm talking about things where they're set in completely different locations with different language, but the concepts have a lot in common. And there are some people who have a uh, tradition that it says, Yafta Elohim Liyafes Vidar Be'ahalei that Greeks uh, comes from comes from Yefes, that there is in fact on some deep level that you know the Greeks got some ideas from Alishem. Well, I don't want to get I don't know enough about that, but but to me that that's not the point. The point is is that you know, there's there's a simple very interesting correlation between certain ideas, and even though in Greek philosophy they end up being dispelled, right? But they're very analogous the concepts of mysticism. And the way analogies work is if you disprove one, it doesn't say anything about the other. But one example is, right, is that if you look at the uh, Aristotelian ideas about, you know, gravity or motion, right, this idea that things, all things seek their, seek their source, right? Physical things fall because they seek the center of the earth. Fire goes up because it seeks the, the sphere of fire, right? That, so there, there is this, this, this idea is very, kind of widespread throughout Greek philosophy. It was very popular. It lasted until the time of Galileo, right? When Galileo pretty much showed that this is not, that this is not a great uh, description of science. But, but this idea of the kind of what the Greeks called the logos as, as existing throughout creation is something which you find in mysticism as well. But over there, it's about spirituality. It's about divinity that in every single thing there is divinity right every single even you know uh inanimate object has particles of divinity 
as some divinity. And it's our work to kind of free them and unite them. And Hasidus has a very long and running uh, discussion about this. But this idea uh, uh, you, uh, you find. So a perversion of this concept is idol worship. So Asav is a very particular character. Asav is born as a physical material being. And the reason is, is because Asav's job in this world is to engage with spirituality in the, in the material world. His job is not to separate himself from the material world and seek spirituality from revelation or from the abstract, but to actively engage in the material world and to rectify and uh, complete the material world by extracting and dealing with spirituality found in the material world. Therefore, Asav's by his nature, his very being is incredibly attracted to that drive, the spirituality and the material. What, what, what is going to make a difference between his righteousness or his evil is going to be how does he channel this drive? Does he channel it into the doing of uh, mitzvot and engaging with the material world in the proper way? Or does he, does he follow the uh, perverted path, which is the path of idol worship? But idol worship represents and is a manifestation of this drive, and therefore it's extremely attractive to him. To Yaakov, who is a pure, and he is more of the spiritual and non-material part, this is not attractive. What's attractive to him is the spirituality in the abstract, in the non-material, which is manifest by prayer, or by the uh, house of worship, or the learning, or whatever it is, which is, which is non-material, spirituality. It's non-material divinity. Where do we see, or where do we know that Esau was uh, um, idol worshiper? Idol worshiper. Oh, so where do we see this later? So that's a very good question. So it says, so the, the rabbis derive it from, from a few different sources. Uh, one of them is that when it says later, it says, uh, and he was tired, then using the uh, hermeneutics of the 13 principles, it kind of uses the word uh, ayef to show how ayef represents idol worship, ayef represents murder, um, ayef represents um, uh, also uh, adultery. And, you know, we'll see that Yosef hit all the big uh, exciting things on that day. So then the Medrash goes into a long explanation of him murdering Nimrod, whatever. But but Esav, Esav on that day, when he turns 13 and he actually gets his Yetzirah, his Yetzirah, and he becomes of age, really, you know, just hits a home run and tries to do everything bad. But, but, they, but they use the word ayef uh, uh, to uh, derive that he actively worshiped idols over there. And then there are various uh, uh, midrashim and uh, drashos in other places that show that he worshiped idols. But it's not, it's not, it's not explicit. So, okay, so that's that. So, so that's Asa. So Asaph is born. Asaph is meant to be the person who engages with this world. And his path in life is very different from Yaakov. Yaakov is meant to be the purely holy spiritual one. Asaph is meant to be the earthly material one. But there's a symbiotic relationship between the two of them. Yaakov cannot exist in a uh, material world. He can't. He can't function in it. Ishtam Yoshevohalam, we're going to see. He needs Asaph. Asaph is the leader of the brothers because Asaph is the one who's able to navigate a material world. Yaakov is the Jiminy Cricket of the brothers. 
Yaakov's job is to really channel and bring pure spirituality and uh, divinity into the relationship to empower Asaph to be able to resist and uh, engage with the material world in the proper way. And this is their partnership. This is the ideal partnership, as we mentioned. This was a similar partnership between Cain and Hevel. This was a similar partnership, as we're going to see, between uh, Yisachar and Zvulan. A very similar concept. Right? This is something which, which, is, which is this ideal partnership. The one who is more engaged in the material, the one who is more engaged in the spiritual, and the relationship and the symbiotic relationship between them. Why do they call Esav Esav? The reason is, is because they were talking about his shame etza, that the, these physical manifestations, the red here, the flushness, the hearingness, is, is, are, were, were physical symbols or physical, just kind of physical, you know, symbols of passion and um, uh, earthiness. And they called him Asaph because they were not embarrassed of this. This was not a flaw. This was his strength. This was the characterization of Asaph's mission, to be able to take these qualities of passion and of his ability to relate to the material world and to channel them into doing something great. He wasn't supposed to ignore these parts of his personality. He was supposed to embrace these parts of his personality and use them in the right way. And in fact, another person who had exactly these two qualities was David Amalek. David Amalek was also red hair, was also very passionate, right? The same thing. But David Amalek, unlike Asa, channeled it in the right way, except when he messed up with uh, Bacheva. But he channeled it, he, right? He, he channels it in the, in, the, in the right way, right? So, so David Amalek, in a way, is an Asa done right to some extent. Okay, so, so, so that's, so that's Asaph. And Asaph, he's supposed to be this person. He's supposed to be this person. Yaakov, why is Yaakov called Yaakov? Because he was holding on to his Akev, right? So if you remember, we talked about this, that where, does, where else does the Torah use the word Akev? Or doesn't it make a big deal, right? Uh, in uh, in uh, Devarim, right? Where it says Akev, I'm embarrassed at the, 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 the verse. Akev, Tishma. The positive starts off right that that Vahaya Akev. Oh my gosh, wow, I can't, I'm completely blinking out on uh, on that word. Let me just pull it up. Sorry. So the beginning of Parshas Akev, where it talks about mitzvah such a dash be a cup. Here we go. Um, uh, so for some reason, my computer's taking a long time to load. Okay, here we go. Has anybody else been having issues with Optimum recently? Always. Yeah. Not new. Why? It's not new. The internet. It's yeah. It's always been yours. Okay. Maybe it's time to finally go to Verizon. Either way. So um. So yeah. So the puzzle starts off. Uh. 
right. So I think it's one of the fundamental, right? And then if you if you do obey these rules, whatever. But the idea is is that the notion of the of the of the akev, right? Of the of the of the heel is so the uh, many many commentaries, but I'm thinking more specifically about these fasemas point out to, to, to the Torah using uh, the word akev, which is similar to the word heel, and Rashi says that this is referring to people who are careful about the mitzvahs that other people step on, right? It, it's talking about this idea that if you, if you listen and if you observe, the term akev is a reference to both the heel and to somebody who's completely and totally focused on the observance of all the mitzvahs. And this is interesting that Yaakov comes from the same root, akev, right? And there's this idea that that but that but that but, but that his observance of the mitzvahs, Yaakov's spirituality, is anchored to Esau. And there is this connection that, that this relationship between the two of them is that what keeps Esau righteous is Yaakov, but what enables Yaakov to come out into the material world to exist in the material world is his connection to Esau, his holding on to Esau. Okay. So this sounds very abstract, but I think as, as we go through a little bit further, I think this becomes very, very clear and becomes, I think, a very useful paradigm to be able to understand the, the, rest, the rest of the story. Okay? So... Uh, no, Rabbi, I... Yeah, I, I'm I, I read something that uh, actually that um, Yaakov was cre conceived first and Esau was conceived second. Right, so people say this, I think Rashi also says it. It's a very hard idea. They're kind of trying to say that Yaakov was always supposed to be the firstborn, but the reality right. is, that, is that from a halakhic perspective, it wouldn't make a difference, right? What matters about, from, about the firstborn is birth, anyways. But, but there, there is this idea. I, I, don't, I don't really understand necessarily what the agenda is. I think that the agenda is, is that, similar to what I'm talking about, that in, in the womb, meaning in the spiritual realm, Yaakov is really on top and Esav is really below, and but, but in the material world, circumstances uh, necessitate that, that, that Esav is the leadership figure and Yaakov follows him because Esav is able to, to, to navigate. I don't know exactly, but, but, I, but I did hear the, the, this idea before. Right. I was at the line, it's like two corks in a bottle, whatever. Yeah, Herman, what were you saying? No, okay, great. Okay, thank you for sharing. Okay, fine. So, Let's move on. Herman, uh, did you read the, the, the beginning for us? Yes, I did. Okay, so Paul, you mind continuing? Uh, Herman, you read, you read until, until Pasuk uh, 23, right? Right. Okay, so from 24 on, Paul, if you don't mind. Okay. When her term to bear grew full, then uh, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first one emerged red, entirely like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. After that, his brother emerged with his hand grasping under the heel of Esau, so he called his name Jacob. Isaac was uh, 60 years old when she bore them. The lads grew up, and Esau became one who knows trapping, a man of the field. But Yaakov was a wholesome man, abiding in tents. Yitzhak loved Esau, for game was in his mouth. But Rivka, Rivka loved Yaakov. Yaakov simmered a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Aesop said to Yaakov, pour into me now some of that very red stuff, for I am exhausted. He therefore called his name Adom. Yaakov said, sell as this day your birthright to me. 
And Esau said, look, I'm going to die. So of what use to me is a birthright? Yaakov said, swear to me as this day. He swore to him and sold his birthright to Yaakov. Yaakov gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank, got up and left. Thus Esau spurned the birthright. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. Right, famous story, very difficult story to understand. Esau comes home, he's hungry from the field. He sees Yaakov making dinner, making this beef stew, right? So haliteni na min ha'adayim ha'adayim hazah, from this red, red food. Ki ayif because I am exhausted. So they said, so haliteni na, the language of pouring, just kind of pour it into me, you know, just, you know, a teenage boy coming home, feed me, yeah? Okay, so al kain karashmo edom. I mean, this is the 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 the, the, the naming conventions in the story are bizarre, right? We call Esav Esav because he's hairy. We call Yaakov because he's holding on to a heel. And now we're naming the entire. We're giving you know Esav's nickname and eventually the name of his nation Edom. Why? Because he once saw a uh, lentil stew and called it red. Um, right, well, why, right? That seems, it seems very, does not seem like, like a, like a incredibly, um, uh, monumental reason to, to, to a very profound reason to name something, name a nation something. Then Yaakov says, Bayomer Yaakov, Yaakov says, Mikra chayom es b'chayras chali. Sell me your bechorah. Sell me your firstborn quality. Your firstborn right, sorry, your birthright. So Asaph tells him a very interesting response. He says, I am going to die. Why do I need the firstborn's that? So Yaakov makes him swear and he sells it to Yaakov. And Yaakov gives him bread and beans. He eats, he drinks. But Yaakov, he gets up and he goes, Vayivaz Esav is habachor. And Esav goes and he embarrasses or shames the, the, the Bechor. Now, if you think about it, it's a very, very strange story. Why does Esav say, I am going to die? I mean, presumably his father would die before him. Definitely at 13, you know, Esav probably did not have a pessimistic enough view on life to think that he would die before his father. So the firstborn right was very valuable. It was valuable because it meant that he got, he, that he inherited, that he uh, inherited his father's lands, he inherited his father's legacy. He was the firstborn. So what does he mean, he nani Right? Of course, of course he wants the firstborn portion, right? Who cares? About, yes, he'll die eventually. We all die eventually, right? But what's Asaph missing over here? He's giving up to Yaakov the entire rights of being of being a firstborn, of Esau's of Yitzhak's money, of Yitzhak's legacy, whatever, right? Why why, why would he do that? Then it says Vayakov Vayelich, and the Torah criticizes him very sharply. It says Vayivez Esav is and Esav shames the Bechorah. Well, what was the shame? He sold it. Didn't like. It. I mean, what was the big deal over here? So it's written that, that what the conversation here between Esav, Esav and Yaakov is going into something which is very important. And the Talmud explains that on that day when Esav, the reason why he was tired was because 
On that day, he committed a bunch of sins, murder, adultery, all these different sins. And the, the driving, he would, there, was one driving, there was one driving quality behind why Asaph did everything. And that was that he was, he had no concept of, he had no awareness of delayed consequences. He only cared about what was going on at that moment and what instant gratification he can get at that moment. And he did not at all consider the future. That was the driving quality of Asaph. That's what led him to murder. That's what led him to uh, adultery. He cared about only satisfying his temptation. Didn't care about anything else. Everything was instant gratification. And in the way this blindness to circumstances, blindness to the context right, of your actions and of what you're doing is highlighted in a very kind of interesting way by the way he describes the Nizid uh, Adash, these, these, these lentils. The Medrash writes from based on Talmud, right, is that there's this very, that what is, the, what were the, why was Yaakov cooking lentils at this particular moment? So it says that the Medrash writes, the reason why he was cooking lentils was because this was, the, this was during the Shiva of uh, Avram. Avram passed away, Avram died, and he was cooking lentils because those were traditionally the foods that you made a mourner. Now, whatever the, the, the reason is, but Yaakov is cooking this food, Asaph comes, Asaph doesn't even notice the food itself. What does Asaph notice? He only notices the most salient quality of the food, the color. Asaph is not capable of looking beneath the surface of anything. He has the most shallow perspective possible as long as it comes to fulfill his uh, uh, um, uh, temptation. He doesn't think about why there are lentils there. He doesn't care why there are lentils there. He doesn't even care if they're lentils. He doesn't care what they are. The color is appealing. He wants it. That's where he stops. He wants Nimrod's coat, he'll kill Nimrod. He wants a woman, doesn't care if she wants to or not, doesn't care if she's married or not, doesn't care what the consequences are. Asaph is a man who acts completely based on temptation in that moment. And what's fascinating is that this works both ways. Because we see that when Asaph greets Yaakov a bunch of years later, he behaves the same way. He comes with his army, 400 guys. He's ready to go wipe out his brother. He sees his brother at that moment. He happens to like him. He runs, he hugs him, he kisses him, he offers him the world. But Yaakov knows his brother. So Yaakov says, go on ahead, because I know that your mood can change tomorrow. Asaph is complete. He just, instant gratification, moody, just acts on his temptation, right? Completely and totally base. How does that connect with what you said before about of being able to bring the spirituality out of the world. So that's, that's, so that's the point, is that Asaph has this incredible relationship and connection to the material world, but he has to be able to subjugate it. He needs to be able to impose on it the discipline of Yaakov. He needs to be, Yaakov needs to help him, whatever it is, but Asaph needs to be able to channel it properly. And even though our base drives push us somewhere, right, we need to use our higher selves to be able to channel and guide those base drives. But if you're able to do that, if you're able to harness those drives in the proper way, not, not negate them, not get rid of them, but to channel them, 
then they're incredibly powerful. So Asaph has this capacity. He has these drives. He has this earthiness. He has the potential there. But he doesn't bother to check it. He doesn't bother to harness it, to channel it, to, to uh, discipline it at all. And this is, what, this is the story of the, of the Bechorah. The Bechorah is all about delayed gratification. Whether we're talking about eventually the, 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 the spirituality of it, getting the avoda, getting all these different things, the, or whether it's talking about practically the, 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 the birthright, Esau is not capable of imposing any discipline on himself. So to him, the Bechorah is not immediate pleasure, and the food is immediate pleasure. And therefore, even though they're completely different, he chooses food over, over, over that. And it's meant to highlight, in a way to accentuate, the failing of Esau. Where Esau goes bad. The fatal flaw of him. And Esau, Esau, he, when it says, Vayivaz Esau as HaBechorah, is that this was, in a way, the most kind of ridiculous thing he could have done. Hineani Holachlamas, I'm going to die. So what? His father would die before him, likely. The Bechorah had value in his lifetime. And even if it didn't, it had value for his uh, descendants, the incredible spiritual potential. The, these things matter to Esau, right? He's going to sell all this for a bowl of lentils? I mean, lentils aren't that good, right? But he's going he's gonna to sell all that? I mean, and therefore, it's, it's there, the whole episode of the selling of the Bechorah is there to show where Esau's, kind of where he collapsed. Where he, where all of a sudden he went from being somebody who had this incredible potential to be one of the shvatim, to be the spiritual leader in this world, this Yosef, as we're going to see, because Yosef has very similar qualities to Esau, a lot of similar qualities to Esau, Yosef. He's very passionate. He is very successful in dealing, in dealing with this world, and he's very smooth and we're going to see that this is, you know, and then because this, the, the brothers think he is another Esau, and he is conning uh, their father. But, but you know, Esau had, had the potential to be a Yosef. And which is why we'll see also that Yosef is the antidote to Esau, why Yaakov leaves Lavan's house only after he has Yosef. But, but Rasha talks about because Esau was a flame, and he can destroy the straw of Daisab. Uh, because Yosef was a flame, and why Yosef, why is Yosef uh, so special? But, but Asaph had potential. And because he was not able to master discipline and the, abil- and, the, and the ability to be able to repress the, you know, kind of instant gratification for something greater, this is really kind of the, the uh, Nikuda, the place where Asaph collapses. And at this point, Yaakov's mission entirely changes in life. He can no longer be Ishtam Yoshevahala. He can't. He now has to be both. And from the Parsha, from this point onwards, when Yaakov manipulates his brother and buys the Bechorah, and Yosef considers this, Esau considers this to be trickery, and he's horrified by this. Because Yaakov was supposed to be the good brother, not, you know, he's supposed to be the one who doesn't do these things. And later, when, he, when, he's, when he's complaining to Yitzchak about Yaakov, he says, uh, 
Yaakveini is up pa'amayim. He kind of fooled me twice, right? Because at this point, Yaakov begins the development of being somebody who's able to function in this world because he no longer has Esav. And what's interesting is the word Esav uses by Yaakov's trickery is the word Akveini, right? The very thing that connected Esav and Yaakov is now something that Yaakov has to take back and begin to develop himself into somebody who could eventually go toe-to-toe with Lava, which is going to be very important. And there is, and then to me, this is, I think this is a very interesting thing is that, and I want to just answer one final thing, which I didn't get to is that why does she go to the yeshiva of Shem and Abraham? The reason why she goes to the yeshiva of Shem and Abraham, and, and, and as I mentioned in the past, is because Shem and Aver were not people who lived in cloistered environments. These are people who developed a spirituality in the grave. They lived in a very difficult time. They lived in a kind of surrounded by idol worshippers. They lived in, you know, it was a very different, the whole school of Shem and Aver. And as we've, I mentioned in the past, and we may mention again next week why Yaakov goes there after he leaves his father's house, because, because Shem and Aver is Judaism in the gray. It's where the, where the nuance and the kind of the parts that are not easy and the ones that you want on the front page of the, of the New York Times but are still necessary are developed. And therefore, Rivka has to go to them because in her stomach, something nuanced is going on. Something, something, something challenging, something nuanced, where this Aesop-like character on the surface seems contradicting, very, very contradictory to everything which the House of uh, Avram stands for, but in reality has tremendous spiritual potential. And for that, for that type of guidance, she has to go to to, to the to the uh, yeshiva of Shem and Aver, where they're able to be able, able to appreciate this type of Judaism. Okay, we'll we'll stop here.